0: This is the Chronically Fit Show. On this podcast, we speak to people achieving incredible sporting goals despite a chronic health condition. My name's David, and I have autoimmune hepatitis. I'm joined by health and fitness experts to better understand how physical activity can help manage chronic conditions like mine. Through the conversations I'm having with our guests, I'm better understanding how to approach my own health condition, so I hope you enjoy not just this show, but Journey. On today's episode of the Chronically Fit Show, the last in the current season, we're talking to Jason Smith, the Paralympic sprinter, fastest Paralympian over 100 metres in the world. And this is a fascinating interview because, to be perfectly frank, Jason didn't really want to be part of the Paralympic movement. It, It made him face up to the idea that somehow he had a condition that made him less than others, which is not the case at all. This is another example of how someone with a disability is actually an elite athlete, and how that mindset and positivity can make a tremendous difference. Afterwards, stay tuned for some chat between myself, Marla, and Natalie, and please do share, subscribe, and listen to the show, listen to the episodes you might not have done so, so far, and we will be back for a second series. So chatting to me today is Jason Smith, the Irish runner. Jason, you're the fastest Paralympian on the planet. Is it 19 gold medals at Paralympian Games? Paralympic Games, rather.
1: 20, so 20 from either European, World, or Paralympic Games.
0: Which is incredible. Uh And it's in, make sure I get this right, it's in T13? Yep. Meters?
1: T13 yeah, T13. We'll probably go into that a little later. Would you like me to explain a little bit about I- that now?
0: I think it would be great for you to just very quickly explain what your sporting discipline is and exactly what t13 actually refers to and I suppose from that what condition you you yourself face
1: perfect so I run the 100 and 200 meters on the track um, and as you said the t13 category so um, I'm not sure if people are aware or not but within the Paralympics the number uh, is associated with a with a certain disability um and within that depending on the level of it so for me i'm uh, visually impaired um and the visually impaired categories are 11 12 and 13 t at the front means track um so 11 would be those that are completely blind 12 would be those from roughly blind to about five percent vision so maybe one to five percent vision and then thirteen would be those from about five up to ten percent vision. So mm-hmm. um, that I sit in there of roughly about five to ten percent vision um, of an eye condition called Stargardt, which I was diagnosed when I was around the age of eight. So it's a genetic eye condition that my my granda would have had, and um, actually nobody else in my family has it. Um, auntie's uncles, parents. Uh, Brothers, sisters, cousins—just me. Um, and basically, what that is, it's always hard to describe. Like people always ask me, "So, what can you see?" And I've always thinking, "Well, how do you explain to me what you can see?" (laughs) You know, it's 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 not that simple. Um, but basically, for me, the central vision is blind, um, and that's the better part of the eye, and that's what you'd see use for for seeing things clearly and seeing things, um. At a distance, so for me, I would I would be using then therefore the 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 side of my the peripheral vision, um, to see things. So often when I'm looking at things, I'd actually be looking past things, but basically everything is is blurry. So, um, a way nearly to think about it is if you ever see somebody who takes a really bad picture and it's extremely blurry, uh, yeah. Like I can see colours, and you know colour contrast but the detail isn't really there. Um, and often you you kind of make things out um, because of the change in colour and what the the outline of it is rather than detail. Um,
0: I mean, look, I, I don't want to make light of it because obviously it's a very serious condition. But I suppose when you say, how do, how do you explain what you see when you've got no point of reference? I remember my sister um, getting glasses in her early teens and always assuming that... Um, televisions were a bit fuzzy because she'd never known up until that point that she had bad eyesight until she went for, a, for yeah. <laughs> the opticians and you went oh yeah no your eyesight's horrendous yeah well that, glasses and then suddenly oh hang on a minute
1: that's exactly kind of what happened with me when i was seven or eight as my mom started to realize um my mom and dad that as i say i started to look past them when i was looking at things or all of a sudden i'd be sitting about a meter away from the tv every time to see it or in school um i would have to start kind of walking up closer to the board to to see what was in it. And um, yeah, from there you start to put two and two together and think, you know, something's not quite right here.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Obviously that's a young age to, for, I suppose for your parents to find out that their their child has something that they must immediately have thought, how is this going to affect his his life? Is he going to be able to be, in society uh you know a- able to function look after himself etc um did, were you aware of that at all at that age or or or, or, or you know were you kind of fairly i suppose it's, it's it's something difficult to comprehend with but when you're that young maybe maybe you don't kind of overanalyze it and you just kind of get on with living and and, and do the best that you can
1: yeah i, th- I think there's a bit of both um I think absolutely from my parents' perspective, you know, they understood um a bit more of the impact and um what it, it might mean. Um I think for myself it it was a bit of both. Um you know, at that age you don't really quite know and as time goes on and and you know, just simple things become a little harder to do or a little different. Um you you start to to realize and i think with with when you look at any situation of people being diagnosed with something um we're always you're always leaving thinking of or being told of all the things you can't do or all the things that are gonna be more difficult um and that's that's the challenge around it isn't it it's not about what you can do or what the possibilities or the opportunities out there it's it's always about what you can't do and how life's mm-hmm. going to be more difficult and you're going to face these challenges um and i think that can be be anybody in, in the situation where you're diagnosed with something that is the challenge is how do you get past that point and for some people that can take quite a lot of time or quite a long time
0: So, look, what was your immediate reaction to being told that there was something different about you? I suppose at that age, kids really don't want to be different. Okay, so I don't know how it would have manifested itself with you at eight years old. Yeah. And and to be honest, and I think of that whole
1: period from, say, being eight, um, even through school, as you say, all the way up into 17, 18, is schools is about trying to fit in. Um, really. And for me, it was how do you not draw attention to yourself um, on what you can't do? Now, it was very obvious and and things I would have needed larger font on uh, books. Somebody beside me would be um, telling me what's on the board or the projector. So, you know, it was very, very obvious, but um, it was about trying to be seen as normal as possible um and and this is probably where I I found probably the most difficult was 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 through that period and kind of within that around 15 sixteen was this opportunity to to get involved in Paralympics so I mean I was very sporty loved all sports yeah I know you give me a football and I could pretty much run past anybody but I wasn't necessarily involved in athletics, a school teacher encouraged me to go to athletics um i went along met my coach um for the first year you know said nothing i would always be you know as i kind of said i just didn't make any deal about what i can and can't say just got head down stuck in like like anybody else um and it was actually a year later that my my dad had mentioned to my coach and and from that the conversation kind of started around um would i be in would i um be interested in get involved in, in Paralympics. And I find that that whole um, process and um, that decision to get involved actually quite difficult. Um, when I kind of reflect is that whole period, it was about hiding my disability. It was about mm-hmm. putting in. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, you getting involved in, in Paralympic sport, would actually do the opposite. It would start to shine a light on what you're trying to hide. Um, and I'm not sure why I decided to at the time. Um, and I, I thought hard about it and I was very unsure and um about it, but the reality is probably looking back, that was the start of um me beginning to accept it. Um, and mm-hmm. that's quite a long period of, say, 10 years of, of probably not accepting it um, to kind of start to turn that corner. And I, I wouldn't say I accepted it as I decided to do it. It was more through the process of being involved in sport um, and the confidence that, that came from that and obviously a lot of the success that came from that as well.
0: Yeah. Look, if you don't mind me jumping in, I mean... When you were eight years old, I'm assuming I'm assuming that because this is degenerative, you had more of your eyesight then than you, you do now. I don't know whether it's a slow gradual or whether it tends to kind of drop off in stages. Perhaps you can you can explain that. But how did you get involved in sports in the first place? Because you know, I, I watched Rising Phoenix on um, Netflix, which is a fabulous documentary, uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, and it had a very short section on. Downhill slalom skiing, and I sat there and thought, What the hell are these people doing? Yeah. Like, they can't see and too- they're going over 100 miles an hour downhill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 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 where, how, how did you get involved in sport in the first place? Because it, you don't immediately jump from, Oh, you can run a foot, run around with a football to this guy is seriously fast.
1: Yeah. I, um, I suppose, firstly, about my eye condition. So, yeah, the, with it being a degenerative eye condition, um, <clears throat> For me, generally it's it's been quite stable and it's maybe dropped slightly. And obviously when you're dealing with it and living with it day to day, you don't see small changes. Mm-hmm. Um there is that uh unknown of uh, I suppose where, where the future can go. Um but to me, to be honest, you know, you can't influence that, so why why dwell on it too much? But um looking at sport, I I I don't I don't know if there's um a specific point where I got involved in sport I always loved sport I don't know if it was um it, it, it had to be before I was diagnosed because um like p1 whatever age five six seven I was sports day at school um all the way up um through those ages before I was diagnosed and after and and obviously something like uh, being fast usually can generally equate into to being pretty good at other sports, so you know mm. I was always decent enough at sport um and I was never brought up being any different. you know, by the way, my parents treated me was never any different. The getting involved in sport was never any different, so I don't actually think I ever looked at it as being any different you know this this was normal. Um, this is just the way it was. Um, and I, I, I think on a, in a sporting aspect, I mean, I always felt, even though I couldn't see and had, you know, less than 10% vision, I fe- felt I could be as good as anybody else that I was playing with, um, in other sports, even though I had, um, obvious challenges so you know i never really looked and and maybe that's something that's that stood me in good stead is i've never really looked at it me being a different situation and i think again the way you're 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 brought up and the people around you kind of help mold you into into the way you think
0: so you you mentioned that sport gave you a lot of confidence and i suppose allowed you to go well i i am I am just as good. I am better. I can beat you. It doesn't matter that I've got this diagnosis. I I can outcompete you. But is that there, there must be a step between all right, you know, good at good at, there's there's countless okay, so there's countless tales of people that are very good at sport at school and have natural talent, but then don't have the dedication to carry it through to being the best in their given field in the world. What gave you that motivation? Was it was it partly coming to terms with it and then wanting to take advantage of, obviously, the natural ability that you had?
1: Yeah, I think probably a a combination of things. Um, You know, yes, I was talented at it. So without that, um, you know, there's only so far you're going to go. But as you say, there's only so far talent takes you. Um, And I think within, within athletics, I was very fortunate to have the coach I had um, a guy by the name of of Stephen Maguire, and um, from I suppose post Beijing, which was two thousand eight, um, he was very much under this idea of to be the best, you try be around the best, and for us that actually led us to to heading out to the states, um, which we were out there for for four years with um some of the the top sprinters in the world, the likes of people know of like Tyson Gay, um, you know, you mm-hmm. Olympic medalists. Um and I think being around that environment, that mindset started to to change the way I thought and the the commitment. And again, I was always pretty good in my commitment and dedication and uh, my ability to work hard. But the environment you go into is kind of what allows you to to move up to that next level if that environment is the next level. Um, and I think the combination, as I say, of my coach who had everything very well structured around me, um, who I learned from, and the the top sprinters in the world and coaches that I learned from, that that again started to turn into to what was normal that's what i expected of of me um so i think that kind of started to to bridge that gap between yes i'm very good but this is what it takes to be the best Mm -hmm. um and being in that environment and knowing that i could also mix it up and be relatively close to those guys gave me confidence in knowing yeah i can and actually i'm not that far away from um you know, in London, twenty twelve, I was zero point zero four, so four hundredths of a second away from making the Olympic Games. So, um, you know, I I knew I was at a level that that very few uh, Paralympic athletes, vision impaired, blind athletes, um, have ever been at, and and you know, possibly you mightn't find very many that ever get there.
0: Now you mentioned that it was it was about ten years until you began to kind of shine a light on your condition, and and accept it. Um, I, I think there's a very short clip towards the end of Rising Phoenix, the, the documentary that I mentioned, where it shows you returning after one of the Paralympic Games. And it lo- it looks like, maybe I've got this wrong, but it looks like it was kind of a shopping centre or a shopping mall. And it was kind of like a gathering and a welcom- welcoming home of of, of of athletes. I suppose having accepted it to be part of the Paralympic movement, it then does come with a certain level of attention, right?
1: Which is a fabulous
0: platform, but there are very few men, it would seem, who have chronic conditions who do want to talk openly and share that vulnerability around how it might make them feel. Is is that something that you've that you've had to come to terms with, and do you like do you like the attention that I suppose it come, that comes with it from that regard?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's something we've had to to come to terms with. In that instance, you're talking about actually, I think it was us coming home from Rio, um, right. and it was actually coming into the airport that there was quite a lot of people there and obviously within this this whole Paralympic movement we've seen the sport change a lot and we've seen the attention and and so would obviously the public especially post-London 2012 being being a massive um turning point and you start to now look at some of these higher pro profile athletes as um role models and and people that that can inspire you know, people in in similar situations. I think that's one of the incredible things about the Paralympics in general is, you know, you can look at, it can be inspiring for people struggling with um, whatever their disabilities are, but life's really about overcoming challenges and um, the whole Paralympic movement um, kind of embodies that. It's about overcoming challenges to to be successful and, and regardless of the challenge you face, you can be successful um but for me specifically back to the, your your question around do i enjoy it and I, I i do at this point um because i i know the position i am in i know where I, where i came from um and i was once for example one of these young visually impaired people trying to to find um i suppose my way in life or or what you know the future had in store for me um and again back to what i said earlier there's there's more doubts about what you can do and there's a more of a neg- negative stigma around around everything around that um but my whole journey has has taught me around is around being successful and it's about believing in yourself and in fact you can do whatever you want if you're willing to to put in the work and make the sacrifices, be in the right environment, then um, there is no limits to what you can achieve. So I feel somewhat uh, as somebody who has kind of gone through that process. That absolutely, it's my responsibility to to try shine a little bit of a light on anybody who's wants to know or um, can motivate somebody or inspire somebody to, um, I suppose to have experiences or opportunities that can actually change the way you think the rest of your life, um, which is, you know, way above sport.
0: So what's the one thing that if, it's obviously diff- would be difficult to talk to an eight-year-old about the future, but if, if you could go back and talk, talk to yourself at that age and offer that person some advice, what do you think you'd tell them?
1: Yeah, it is um, a difficult one to know is there one thing you you would tell somebody? Um, And again, everybody has to go on a slightly different journey and experience things um, in their own way and and get to wherever that destination is. Um, But for me, I would probably say a bit around believing in yourself. Um, And I think that's probably one of the most powerful things. Um, I mean, the mind plays a massive role on on everything um, and the way you look at things, but um, believing in yourself and and what you can achieve for me has, has opened up um, a lot of doors and a lot of success, but it's going to be that mindset that allows me to continue to, to be successful and achieve things. So I think if you can really um, buy into that, um, and obviously with that comes confidence. Um, then there's a long way you can go. Again, that's got to be built upon the right foundations of, you know, what I'd mentioned before, like hard work mm-hmm. and commitment. Um, but if you don't believe in yourself, you look at sport and sport at a very high level. Again, the mindset um, becomes the often the difference between those winning and losing because there's, we're talking about fine margins um so i think again very hard thing to to teach someone but Mm -hmm. if you can um kind of grasp that then i think you can go a long way
0: and and related to that i mean what do you think the most valuable thing that you've picked up through that through your own journey is that you kind of now fall back on um
1: i i think it, it is related to that to be honest um and around not doubting myself. Um, I think that's probably one of the things people uh, tend to fall back onto is to doubt yourself, especially when things are, um, it's easy not to doubt yourself when things are going well. But, you know, it's very easy to, to fall into that trap when things aren't going well. Um, but for me, it's, I think that confidence, these are all linked confidence, believing in myself and not doubting myself um again everything has to be upon up the right foundations but those um i suppose principles have have been something that i think will will be a massive um has massively changed they're probably the things that i've learned that have that have changed the way i think and act forever which are the more important than than maybe the things that everybody looks at as a success and and medals
0: and look, the last thing that I wanted to ask you, you as you say there, you need to update your your, your Twitter, by the way, it <laughs> says 19 medals, not 20, <laughs> but look, you've had some incredible achievements, joking aside, like some genuinely incredible achievements. I And, and, you know, when faced with something that might make some people go, I, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do these things that you've, you've achieved. What do you think personally is your greatest achievement um, to date? Um, I'd say probably two
1: different, but two different things in a different way, both related obviously to, to, um, sport. Um, one of them kind of being around what I had mentioned about one of the things I've always been trying to do is, is bridge that gap into mainstream sport. Um, you know, seeing a blind visually impaired person competing against people that are, so-called, you know, able body or, or normal. So uh, being one of very few Paralympic athletes to, to be able to have been at European Championships, Commonwealth Games, World Championships, um, just on a mainstream level, and obviously narrowly missed out in, in the Olympics in 2012. So one thing's been around trying to bridge that gap and push those boundaries of what people perceive as possible. Um, the second would probably just be around my whole Paralympic career, uh, I first um, competed in two thousand five at uh internationally at the Europeans, and we're now what two thousand twenty of twenty gold medals and and never been beaten at a um major Paralympic event. So to to go such a long period of time, fifteen years.
0: Yeah, uh, that is incredible.
1: Yeah, it's, and, and it's you know, something like sprinting. Yeah, so it's it's. I mean, obviously, it's sh- you're. I'm not looking back. I'm always looking forward and how to continue <laughs> that. But um, you know, to to have gone this far, um, and continue to to have the success, I think, just um, again, we only see those ten seconds of people racing in in a major championship, but what goes on behind the scenes to get somebody to that level and to be consistent over that time, I think, um you know, has been a great achievement to to be operating at that level and be so consistent and reflects, I suppose, the work and the sacrifices um, and the environment that I've put myself in and and tried to keep myself in.
0: Look, Jason, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you this morning. And look, obviously not many of us, very few people are uh, going to be in the position where they can surround themselves with the, with the kind of mindset that you've been able to and meet people like Tyson Gay and, and so on. But I think just listening to your story and and the principles that you've put down, those foundations that you talk about, hopefully give people a lot of confidence that whether they're normal, you know, so-called able-bodied, or they do have a condition, that they can achieve great things. So it's, it's been fantastic of you to give up some time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realized he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They' started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe could be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Right, the bit where I mentioned in the interview about the downhill skiers going downhill, not being able to see anything in in the documentary on Netflix. I don't understand how people do that. I don't understand how someone like Jason basically runs headlong when he can't see stuff, and he's in T13 and T12 and T11 are even worse um, I I just I'm kind of in awe of anyone going very very fast when they can't really see what they're going towards
2: it's very brave for sure
0: <laughs> on a very basic level you kind of go fair play
2: I mean we could probably
3: end this discussion here we could just say he's brave full stop and <laughs> <up, like." laughs> I think that's pretty much the summary <laughs>
0: But there's loads in this one. And and it kind of, there were moments where it was like, you know what? There's so much here that was talked about in other episodes of the show. So uh, he talks about uh, you've got to be in the right environment. And that was kind of like throughout the series. Danielle in the last episode mentioned about a boyfriend and a parent. Devon talks about the negative influence of an ex-boyfriend. Michael talks about the influence of his parents. Like the right environment, the right people around you. Obviously, makes such a tangible difference to how people cope with these chronic conditions and what what they can then achieve in a sporting context, but not just in a sporting context. I know sport is kind of at the at the center of what this is all about because it's such a, an extreme example of you might have a chronic condition, but you can do a huge amount and and kind of be doing something that's as viewed as superhuman. But if you get the right environment around you. I love Jason's message about, you know, it's not about what you can't do, it's about, you know, we should talk a bit about the opportunities and what you can do.
3: Yeah, and it's and it all comes down to I mean in, in my in my opinion is <laughs> There's a tiny bit of postcode lottery here as well, isn't there? Because where are you living? What are your services around you like? How close are you to a hospital that can care for you? How close are you to a hospital that's not overwhelmed? A GP practice that has appointments you can book into that you're seen in a timely manner. And then from there, like... What about your support system? Are they local? Are you able to have the funds to be able to be online and be on the Wi-Fi and being able to connect to people? Are you able to interact with your support system on a regular basis? Are they maybe, you know, in a different country where it's remote? All of these things play into factors. But when you when you meet someone or see someone on television, such, so, you know, like running races like this. You forget that they're a human being with all of these other social parameters around them. And something that I loved about this podcast, and as you say, it really ties in what we've been discussing before, is is that sometimes we can look at them and be like, wow, you're so inspirational. Like you're running, even though you can't really see much, right? Like that's really brave, as we said. But actually, if we pull that all back and say, actually, I think you're really brave because and you're really inspiring because you've managed to build a support system a life a environment a a place that enables you to be the best person you can be i think that's amazing right
2: i think um when he was saying about um sorry this is going away from your point yes that's fantastic marla <laughs> <laughs> um something you said that um that made me remember what he mentioned about talent. Um, obviously, this yeah. guy is very talented. He had it in him, uh, you know, despite uh, you know this challenge that he's battling with. Um, and he, like you said, David, he had like a very positive network around him. He had a great coach. He had like positive, um, you know, supportive parents that were there for him. Even though he struggled at school, you know, to try and fit in, he was trying to be almost that invisible person, really. He didn't want to let his um, condition be known. So you know, when he went into the para, when he took the opportunity to be a Paralympian, it was really tough for him um, because it was like, oh God, I'm going to shine a light on this condition that I've been trying to hide my whole life. Um, and you know, but it was that step that he started to actually accept what was happening. Um, but going back to the talent thing, I I love this, and it couldn't be more true. He said he was very talented at it and he said, but talent does only take you so far. Um, and you know, he was very fortunate to have the people around him, the coach around him. But if you want to be the best at something like he is the best in the world, you've got to be able to be committed and determined and make these sacrifices and, you know, accept the challenges in front of you and face them head on. um, and I think that's I think that's really inspirational. Sort of going off the back of what Marla was saying. <laughs> you,
3: know, you know what? That word sacrifice came up so much, didn't it, in that discussion? It was such a, I mean, maybe it's in my head remembering it, but I think that, you know, sacrifice is such a core cool theme of it because it's true. You can go up to a certain point, but then you need to be, you need to be doing above and beyond, pushing yourselves into different realms. And, and again, Nasty, something you touched on last episode, which was about: it's the hard days that count. It's the days where you're where you're pushing yourself into a really uncomfortable place, but doing it because you know that you want to get to reach your yeah. goals. No, I
2: couldn't agree more. I mean, he said that his whole journey was about being successful. You know, he didn't really talk about. He didn't mention the failures. It was like, it wasn't even a consideration. It was like, no, th- my journey is about success. It's about, you know, putting the work in, making the sacrifices and being able to achieve anything despite what challenges you have in front of you. I'm, you know, it was almost like I've accepted it, but I'm going to take it on and I want to be the best that there is.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you you mentioned his coach and he managed to hide his condition from his coach listening to the interview for for the best part of a year before his father brought it up. And it's like, at school, his attitude was doesn't matter about my condition. I can beat you, you know. And it was quite. It sounded like it was quite a. I don't want to say hostile, but quite a negative kind of. No, there, there might be this thing, but it doesn't matter. I, I'm going to overcome it, and, it, and I don't know, maybe quite, a, quite an aggressive way rather than necessarily accepting it. And then, as he realised that, you know, he there are other. Uh, visually impaired athletes out there, and he wanted to show them very positively what he's been able to achieve. And similarly to Michael, I suppose, it's about bridging that gap. He's obviously always wanted to bridge that gap and show just because he's got a visual impairment, he can be an elite athlete. But he did it in quite an aggressive way when he was younger because he wasn't quite comfortable with it himself. Whereas once he's had the success and he's seen how the Paralympic movement can affect other people, it's very much, no, I still want to show that I can be an elite athlete, but it's something I've come to terms with and, you know, and I suppose, you know, obviously those, those training camps with people like Tyson Gay had, had an incredible uh, effect on him in terms of the work ethic and the, and the positive influences and, and seeing that he could kind of be at their level. um,
2: I love the point he made about everyone has to go on their own journey. Um, Like he wanted to give like an inspiring motivational message um, to people, maybe going through something similar or, you know, experiencing challenges of their own that, you know, everyone is going to face something different. No one is going to go through the same journey and you have to be able to experience things in your own way. Um, and, you know, when he said the most powerful advice that he could probably give is believing in yourself, um, you know, and that, you know, playing into that whole, I can do this, you know, that whole positive mindset, um, it does come with a lot of confidence to do that um, and, and not doubt anything that you do. Uh, which I found was, I thought that was very inspirational.
0: Is Stars Guard something that you'd come across, Marla, at as, as, as any point previously?
2: You keep hitting me with these conditions.
3: that I really don't know much about, David, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, like... You
0: I'm, know more than I do.
3: <laughs> David, today what, I, uh, what? Again, and I say this all, all the time, what I find interesting about these podcasts is listening to what they found useful as patients to know and what they found useful as patients to share as well. Right. And what even, he doesn't even consider himself a patient. Right. So I don't even know why I'm using that word, but <laughs> what, what was interesting was that he said, as you were discussing how it's hard to know what it is like to not have the same vision as you know uh, to not to not have the vision that you would expect to have essentially right of a able-bodied person and so I think that um being able to as as vividly as he described it just kind of Explain what it's like to try and have to explain that to other people, and do how he talks about it to his, you know, like how, how he can just talk about it to healthcare professionals, to his friends, to his colleagues. I think it's really important there because actually it's something I hadn't really thought about. I had thought about what it would be like, but but actually that discussion of when people probe you, how do you how do you respond to that, and how do you talk about that? Yeah, that's these are the things I find interesting. <laughs>
0: no, but it's not too dissimilar, is it, to, to, to Devon's? Um talk about not having the language. Yeah. And how I difficult did. it must be. And look, the reason why I kind of ask you about about guard is not specifically about guard but it's it's related to his point about you know, when you get that diagnosis, it's generally what are the challenges. And I suppose as a medical professional, you must sit there perhaps if, if, if you're with someone's family or partner or whatever else and I suppose the first questions are well what can't I do and when I got my diagnosis my initial my initial my absolute initial thoughts were what can I do yeah so it's really interesting to hear him say what's
3: yeah, the next what's the, what's next the limitation next
0: what have I got to get past rather than oh okay so what can I do
3: yeah
0: which and is it- just I know it's just semantics but it makes such a difference
3: it really does and I think that again this is the way that we have trained you know people to respond to these things it's fight or flight it's like what am I losing you know what 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 am I going to try and grasp for here and I think something that especially I've learned over the course of these episodes and recording it is that you can really tell the people that get it get the diagnosis they have their ups and downs of course that they use that diagnosis to become someone as you know this is as, as Nassie's saying and, and as we've heard in the podcast it's their journey and it's their personal story it's part of their story it doesn't define them and I think that that when when we see the people that aren't defined by the condition and the people that are defined by the condition I think now we're starting to really get to the get to the juicy bits of how we can start to motivate people and start to encourage people to just get fit carry on enjoy their life get back to normal normal inverted commas you know i i think this podcast is magical i'm going to sh- keep sharing it with everyone i know honestly <laughs>
2: i love uh, this one key point <laughs> i wanted to just uh, just finish on um i think is very very true it's about who you surround yourself with as well um he said, you know, that his coach took him to meet, um, you know, other runners, the best in the world, and that he hung out with them and their positive mindset sort of had like a, um, you know, an impact on him, on how he thought. And he said that it changed him forever. You know, his strength, his confidence in himself, um, you know, was even better than it than it ever has been. Um, and I do think that's very true. If you, this is, it's not really going off topic. It is relevant. But, you know, kids in school who hang out with people that get into trouble, who maybe do drugs or alcohol or whatever, you know, and they grow up becoming that sort of person and they have problems later down the line in life, you know, and they, they could be born into a very well middle class family. You know, they might have a support network at home, but it's about who you surround yourself with on a day to day basis. It, it sort of determines the person that you become in the long run. Um, and I think it's incredibly true for an athlete as well, and even people in business. Any sort of walk through life, if you surround yourself with positive people, people that are ambitious, people that you know sort of want to shoot for the moon, um, people that are very confident, you know, not not arrogant but humble people um, that are just looking to to be the best that they can be. It definitely, absolutely has a knock on effect for other people. Um, And I think that's just really important um, for anybody listening in. You know, if you're looking to achieve something or if you're feeling a little bit low or down or, you know, especially with what's been happening this year, I think surrounding yourself with positive people and like minded people that want to achieve achieve the same thing you do. um, I think that you'll get there quicker. I really do. So I think that's really key, a really key message that um, that he brought up.
0: Well, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there but I want to say thank you to both of you because that that is the end of the first series. Um if people are listening in chronological order. But uh thanks for your time. Fingers crossed we'll be back in 2021 when the world's going to be a better place anyway. Um
3: Yeah, but you make me do actual running during this podcast episodes or something fit and healthy. I I'm out like I- <laughs> I'll no, that's, not, that's not me
2: stories.
0: that's, that's oh, not me it, that's Nala. uh that's more Natalie's department you'll
2: work out with me it's <laughs> off. Great <laughs> please <laughs> no <laughs> oh
0: my god well thank you to both of you uh and thank you for listening and yeah do join us in the new year at some point I'm sure that we'll be back for a second series oh.